Welcome back to a special summer edition of Supreme Myths. The podcast is more or less on vacation, as most law professors are during the summer, um, but I'm making an exception, and I'll explain why in a second. I'm very, very pleased to have as my guest today the first ever two-time guest of Supreme Myths. Um, This is my 98th episode, so um, um, I'm not starting over again, but I did want to have Father William Daly on. He was one of my first Yes, um, and, and I was very grateful for that when that happened, when this, when this podcast was in its infancy. Um, and I didn't feel like we got it all out. So I wanted to have Father back to, to, to get more of it out. He is uh, a lecturer in law at Notre Dame. He's the rector of Pangborn Hall at Notre Dame. He's a BA in philosophy from Notre Dame, a Columbia Law degree. He worked for the Ninth, Cir- for the Ninth Circuit, worked for a private law firm. He's very active on Twitter. Um, and, and one of the reasons I wanted to have the Father on is 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 – his and my, I think I'll get him to say what he thinks about this in a second. Our relationship on Twitter is doesn't reflect our real life relationship. Is my view? Of yes. Uh, do you agree with that? I do. Uh, can I tell one funny yes. story? Yes. Someone I shan't name, as we were having our last exchange, where uh, you were throwing around a, a particular word that we can talk about, bigot. <laughs> um, a, a, a person DM'd me and said, "Why haven't you blocked Eric? You know, he's he's so over the top in this stuff." And I, I was responding. I said, you know, when I did his podcast, he's a nice guy. and We got along fine. It's just a Twitter thing. I think within 30 seconds, you sent a private message saying, I apologize. I'm not good at Twitter. Let's do another podcast. So we, we, we certainly see eye to eye on this. I was literally saying it at the moment that you were thinking it and typing well, it. I, you, so. I, I appreciate that. I, I don't know what Twitter, I don't know. Uh, that's a different conversation for a different day. But there is something about Twitter that brings out the worst. It can be very good. And you and I have had, actually, you and I have had great conversations. Where I've learned a lot, I think, and I think, and and you've moved me a little bit at times. I think I may have at least made you think of some things at different times, but it also can become a dumb fire very, very quickly. All right. Um, We're going to talk mostly today about Creative 303, but some other stuff too. Um, And I want to start to get to common ground. Let's start at common ground because then there's going to be serious disagreement. So I always like to start where we can agree on things. And this will be a little bit of a monologue, and I apologize to the audience. But 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 federal courts is kind of my specialty, and there's been so much misinformation about the Creative 303 case. This is the case involving the woman who wanted to do a wedding website but wanted to advertise that she didn't want same-sex couples to ask for her services to design a wedding website, and she would not design a wedding website because it, it violated her faith. Um, it turned out that in the record there was this thing about a a, a person calling her to to do a website, but it turns out, we didn't know the whole story yet, but it turns out that may not have happened. So people on Twitter and elsewhere, including friends of mine, took the position, in this case, the court didn't have jurisdiction because there was no standing because she had never really designed a winning website. Well, all of that's wrong. It's just completely wrong. Um, We allow citizens in this country, and it's a good thing, and I, I think you agree with this. It's a good thing. If you think a law is illegal, violates the Constitution, or violates state or federal law, and you're ready, willing, and able to violate it, and you believe the state will prosecute you, and in the record there is evidence the state may prosecute you, that's called pre-enforcement review, and we want citizens to go to court and say, I want to do X. The state's telling me X is illegal. The state is saying X may prosecute me for this. Tell me I can do X before I do X. That's what she did. She can't advertise under Colorado law, same-sex couples need not come to me. She can't say that. Colorado's already prosecuted people for that. So the case was ripe. Do you have any issue with any of that? No. And the court cited to this. It wasn't hard to look up. So it is baffling that so many people decided to hop on the, you know, uh, it is a boutique 
case in the sense that she was working with, uh, I think, the Alliance Defending Freedom, yes. right? And they are active on certain causes, and they raise a lot of people's hackles who are on the other side of those causes. Mine too. Mine too. <laughs> and so, and, and if you read the piece that I wrote for America Magazine, my broad view is, apart from the law, which isn't the best way to settle how we live together, but sometimes, of course, is essential, you know, I, I if, if a Catholic came to me and said, can I do a gay wedding website? I think my answer is, and I've talked to other priests and theologians, I think my answer is you can, right? So I wouldn't tell someone, don't do this website. So there is something, I, I sympathize with, they're wrong on standing, but I sympathize with people who say, what was her motive to like decide she wanted to do? Were they looking for someone that they could pick this fight? Right. And I think that there's a fine line between saying there are rights that we think are being trampled by this new movement for civil rights for gays and lesbians. And are we picking fights? I think the same thing is true on the other side. I, I hear that the, the masterpiece cake guy, there's like a gay bakery on the same block, right? <laughs> so did you have to go to Jack and say, make our gay wedding cake? But we can talk about the, the merits of the yeah. case. I, 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 I think I you made a bakery that is owned by a gay person. You said a gay Yeah, bakery. it caters to a gay market. Yeah, I okay. assume it's all okay. by a gay person. Okay, but, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, we 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 we. Yeah, there's no such thing as a gay bakery. I agree. <laughs> we 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 agree on all of that. And I just want to state one more time for the record. I've said this on Twitter. The left has used this technique forever. It, without, without this technique, the civil rights movement would have had a much harder time. More importantly, and I want everybody out there on the left who has criticized me for saying the court had the power to hear this case. There's never been an, to the best of my knowledge. There's never been an abortion case in the Supreme Court where the woman or the doctor complaining about what's happening had been already been arrested. They're all pre-enforcement right. reviews. Those were all pre-enforcement, yeah. yeah Which is why Texas wrote that, that strange law that we both agree isn't a good precedent. Exactly. We did agree on that last time, I think, too. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we're gonna, so, so anyway, so the court had the power to hear create the, the case. Let's move. We both agree on that. Common ground, good. Um, second of all, and, and this... I don't know if you agree with this or not. The fact that they could hear the case, and they clearly could to me, it's an Article Three case or controversy, doesn't mean they should have heard the case. And that's a different issue. Now, now she did lose below. So those who think her First Amendment rights were, were trampled, sure, I understand. But First Amendment rights are trampled in this country every day. Almost none of those cases get to the Supreme Court, right? I mean, almost none, virtually none. So I, I do want to say, for those listening, I would have preferred the court to have decided the facts in this case were too speculative that it doesn't give them the right context for them to make such a ruling. And the court does that all the time. The court, you know, the court denies cert in thousands of cases every year where they have jurisdiction. They just decide not to hear it. They could have done that here. Do you have any thoughts about that? You're correct about all that. The reason I think it was probably prudent for them to take it, and I actually don't think we're going to end up disagreeing about very much about this case. I think it is an extremely narrow case, an extremely narrow opinion. Obviously, future courts, some judges who want to be more activists can make mischief with it. And the Fifth Circuit can, you know, do whatever <laughs> they want with things. But right. this opinion is because of the stipulations, it was able to be an extremely narrow case. There are things we can talk about as what counts as expressive. I mean, if we're going to disagree about something, that's probably what we're going to disagree about. Um, but with the state having stipulated so much, it made it an easy case for the author of Bostock, right? to say, okay, Justice Kennedy meant what he said when he, he made these kind of conciliatory things in Obergefell. That's why we took Masterpiece Cake Shop. We kind of punted on the big question because seven justices agreed Colorado had behaved badly, but we left this looming question down the road. What are the limits of our effort to make public accommodations laws that accommodate 
what you and I both agree is the state's very valid and strong interest in vindicating the dignity of gay and lesbian people and, and whatever other categories are, are protected by such laws. And saying what Justice Kennedy did is, but we're not saying that religious people and their expressions of their religion are going to be trampled on without defining what that meant. So I think it made sense for them to take a case that with so many stipulations, they could say, this is very clean. The state agreed with her that this is speech and this is a speech case. It's no different from Wisconsin against Barnett. It's not even a religion case. It turns out that her motive for speaking was that, but the court went to pains to say, imagine an example where a gay couple are in business together and they make websites and a Christian, you know, the Westboro Baptist people come to them and say, help us design our website attacking gay marriage. We, they wouldn't have to do that, right? Even though let's call the Westboro Baptist beneficiaries of some state religious accommodation. I think we could all agree that's not something people should be forced to do. This is the flip side of that same freedom. That's Walter Olson's take on the case. That's my take on the case. My last thing that I think perhaps we disagree about is, as I recall an oral argument, Justice Kagan kept saying, well, isn't this boilerplate stuff, right? So if we imagine that she says, I would make a gay uh, couple a business website, I'd do all kinds of things for them, but not this particular expressive speech. I think Justice Kagan and maybe Justice Sotomayor uh, and Justice Jackson were saying, well, wait a minute, this is like you plug in your name, it's plug and play. There is no real creativity here. That question gives away too much, right? It may be that in this case, the facts were cooked and the state shouldn't have done that stipulation, but they did do that stipulation. That question is only interesting if you think, well, okay, in a case where there was real expression, there is an issue here. So that's all this case stands for. I don't think someone could do a boilerplate website and say, no, this case stands to defend me. It right. doesn't because the state stipulated this, this wasn't just boilerplate, this wasn't like a generic. Uh, and so I don't know where cake baking and decorating goes from here, but, uh, and I'll finish my monologue by saying this. I always go, and I'm sure I have with you on Twitter too, I remember some years ago during the George Floyd riots, people commended Walmart stores for saying, we will no longer decorate a birthday cake or an any cake with the Confederate flag. Right. And people applauded. Why did, nobody said, wait a minute, putting a decoration on a cake could never be expressive, could never invoke the values of the person. They're just putting frosting on a cake. So we all kind of agree that we can imagine examples where putting frosting on a cake would be offensive to the person frosting the cake. And of course, we don't all agree on the things that offend us, but that's what First Amendment law is there for, not to defend only the speech that I would make, but to defend the speech that you would make that I don't, that I find offensive, right? So. So I, I agree with almost all of that, which is going to be very boring for the audience, but we'll get to disagreement. We'll get to, we'll get to disagreements in a second. Um, the state stipulated basically the case away. So we agree on that. And, and, and um, which is kind of too bad in a way, but maybe not. I, I suspect that even the justices most sympathetic to the plaintiff in Creative 303 did not yet have, I don't blame them for this, it's really hard, a worked out theory of what is expression and what is not. We all agree that people who write poems for weddings, I hope we all agree, that people who write poems for weddings cannot be forced to compose an original poem for a wedding that they don't want to do. I, I mean, I don't care what the non-discrimination law is. You know, the state can't be in the... That's why Citizens United was correctly decided. I mean, the rationale is terrible. But the actual hold, the actual result is correct. There was a movie about Hillary, and it was a political movie, and the state wanted to censor it. You can't do that. I mean, that's nuts. Right. The, whole, the, the rationale for that was terrible. We'll bracket that. Um, but in this case, the state said it was expression. We're done. I mean, you know. However... Yeah. Um, I want to go back to masterpieces for a second, just to correct the record on this. 
it, you, you correctly said Justice Kennedy and the court decided that Colorado behaved badly, um, and therefore they decided that case more or less on technicality. That was only relevant to that case. They said certain people in this record said certain things that showed they were biased. Um, all of that was made up, Father, I'm sorry. A very famous law professor, who I'm not going to mention, who I respect very much and had a long and distinguished career, wrote an amicus brief in that case that, that made that argument that Kennedy bought hook, line, and sinker. And I understand why Kennedy would do that, because this professor was very smart and well-regarded by liberals, moderates, and conservatives. Nevertheless. Seven of them bought it. Say again? Seven of them bought it, right? Wasn't it seven to two? Nevertheless, um, there's just no question in my mind that what happened in the the administrative hearings in that case did not represent the kind of bias against religion that should have resulted in the kind of holding the court. It was almost a way of digging the case. Exactly. That's what they affected. They dig the case. That's dig means, by the way, for those non-lawyers out there, sometimes the court takes a case and, and then later decides the record's not good enough or something has intervened or something has changed. And we're just, and, and, and they should have done that, I think, in both cases, but but certainly in Masterpiece, they should have done that because they, the opinion they wrote in Masterpiece, in my opinion, was not reflective of the actual facts of that case in the legal sense. It is true that two people along the way said some things that were questionable. But that, the final decision maker in that case did not. So it didn't matter what the other people said. It doesn't matter. Just want to set the record straight on that. Let's go back to Creative 303 Creative. So um, we agree that writing a wedding website or designing a wedding website, unless it's totally plugged in, which is one she said that's not what she was going to do, um, is expressive. Um, do we agree that providing tables, just regular, you know, tables from a fat, you know, not creative tables, just regular tables, you that's not creative. Right. And, and, and a person who, who creates, I'm sorry, who provides linens, forks, spoons, tables to a wedding site can't say we're not going to do that if it's an interracial marriage and they can't do it in, in, under Colorado law. And they can't do it if they say it's a gay marriage. So we don't want to provide tables that would not be expressive. Is that fair? Right. I mean, then, look, the Catholic Church doesn't do gay weddings. So a person couldn't have a wedding in the Basilica of the Sacred Heart here on campus where we have tons of weddings every year. But we do have a hotel where people can book um, and we have a local accommodations law. So my view has been if somebody wants to have their reception at the Morris Inn at the University of Notre Dame, we don't have religious grounds to say you can't use our catering facility and our banquet hall for this. I think that's probably correct. I haven't studied it and I'm not, I haven't had any clients to that record. But when Obergefell was decided and jurisdictions like South Bend started passing accommodations laws, that seems right to me. Right. Okay. So we agree on most of the legal issues involved in this case. I think we do. Um, now we're going to start disagreeing. <laughs> um, it is true that on Twitter, everywhere, effectively, um, I have called this plaintiff a B. And the reason I have used that very, I have very specific, I don't go around calling people. Contrary to what people think, I don't go around randomly and arbitrarily calling people's names, people names. Um, okay. So on the ground, away from the law, just talking life now, life and people, not the law. Yep. I want you to explain to me, and I'm going to push back, why a um, institution such as the Catholic Church, leaving her aside for the moment, yep. that I'm going to concede at the outset, Now I'm going to say some controversial things about the church later, but at the outset, does amazingly great work all over the world, feeding the hungry, clothing the hungry, doing charity. And clearly, I assume a big part of being part of the Catholic Church is having that spirit in your heart 
of wanting to help other people and treat so. other people well, especially those less fortunate than ourselves. Is that a fair? Yeah. Okay. So when when this woman says, I want to put it on the web, on, on the internet, a sign. And she's not Catholic, by the way, but I am, so I can only okay. really speak to Catholic. But, but she is talking from faith. But she, is ba- she says she's motivated by faith. That's what she says. Yeah. Okay. So when she says same-sex couples need not apply to my business to, to get my services. For this particular service, right. She doesn't I'm say sorry, right. She said, you're absolutely right. She said she would, she would do a birthday party for two gay people if they wanted to, whatever. Um, but, but, but Father, there are so many economic privileges and rights that come with marriage in all 50 states. There are so many, it's, so, it's such a social significance. There's an end-of-life significance that's very serious. When she, what she is saying is, I don't want to put my stamp of approval on the state granting these rights and privileges to these two people because they're gay. Whereas I do want the state, I think this is a position, to provide privileges and financial benefits to married people who are uh, of, of different genders. So just starting off right away. Let's pause. I don't know that we know that she thinks that, right? Okay. I don't know what she thinks about what the law should be. I might very well think. Of course, the law should let. Uh, I've always thought that you know, in the it was the Columbus case, right? Obergefell himself. That yep. was about not being able to visit someone in the hospital. I right. don't know who. Whatever you think about the morality of marriage and the state's involvement in it, that was cruel and shouldn't have happened. Whatever the legal solution to it should have been, she may well think, I, I'm fine with the state granting them all these rights and privileges, but I still have my own religious okay, view of fair enough. marriage. Yes, and I shouldn't have to participate. That's totally, and, and, totally fair. Totally fair. Now. If I owned that business and somebody wanted to celebrate their religion in a, uh, their wedding in a religious manner, and I am a dogmatic atheist who doesn't believe, uh, this is hypothetical now, and, and, and I'm a dogmatic atheist and I don't want to serve, I don't want to be part of their wedding plans, but the state says you can't discriminate against people based on their religion, which I think Colorado does, I could be wrong. Um, the fact that I, that, that, that I might have a free exercise right or a RIFRA right or a first amendment right or some right to refuse to do their wedding doesn't mean I'm not being a jerk by not doing their wedding. And, and, and when she says, I don't want to be a part of this, by the way, she also said homosexuality is immoral somewhere in the record. She said that. So I assume she meant. As you know, again, we're going to talk. I think the reason I sent you the Eve Tushnet article. I assume she meant homosexual activity. I'm sure she did. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I, I mean, not, right. There, there certainly are anti-gay bigots. She may be one. I just don't know enough about her. Right. Let's posit that the person who went on Facebook misunderstanding the decision, saying now I can put up a no gays can come into my restaurant right. sign. That right. person is likely a bigot. That, that's some pretty good evidence. And they misunderstood the case. And I have no problem saying there's anti-gay bigotry and some of it has arisen from people's mistaken understanding of their faith. And that's work that I do in the church with my students. When 18-year-olds come, a lot of people say, without even thinking about it, that's gay, right? One of the first things I do is tell my freshmen who arrive in my all-male dorm, you have to extirpate these kinds of things because they are going to be hurtful, right? And so that's all important stuff to do, by the way. But there you go. Okay, so, so, so I appreciate that. And thank you for doing that. All right, so we'll get right into it, I guess. So I can't think, I'm sorry, Father, I can't think of a non-bigoted reason why she would say 
I will do interracial weddings. I will do weddings between um, people of different faiths. I will do Jewish weddings. I will do all weddings, except same-sex marriage weddings. I think she said, because I did listen to the oral argument relatively recently, I think her counsel said there could also be other even Christian weddings that she felt violated tenets of Christianity that she would probably refrain from doing as well. Okay. But it's one thing to say, I'm not going to do your wedding because you acted. This is where we're going to get right into it. Because you acted in a way that violates my religious tenets. That's one issue. Which, but, but, but that's not what she's saying, Father. She is saying because, and, and now we'll get into, she's saying because of who you are, not what you do. Who yeah, I think it's, it, it is what you do, right? Again, no. we know that she's saying, I will do all kinds of things given who you are. But there's this one thing that I won't do, right? Then it's not because of who you but are. But that one thing is I everything, Father. saying that this is inseparable. But again, that's why we have to read this properly as about her speech and nothing more, right? She is allowed to say and should always be allowed to right. say, I don't believe two people of the same sex should have sex. And, and that's essentially what the church is or what this court is permitting her to do here. When you say she has the free speech right to do it, of course, I agree. With, I have a, I publicly agree with that. I do now. But I don't want to make too much of this analogy, and I want to be clear, I'm not calling her a Nazi. Nazi. So in the famous words of Justice Scalia when he compared homosexual conduct to murder and then was asked by a Princeton student, how could you possibly do that? And he said it's a form of argument. That's not how he should have reacted to that question, but it doesn't matter. Um, I'm going to give you a form of argument here, okay? Um, Let me share with you an anecdote. Since you said you can't think of any reason, let me lay out for you as quickly as I can from a real life anecdote. So one of my dearest friends in life was an undergrad with me. He has been a partner of another man for a long time and who is not Catholic, the, the partner. And uh, they're not married. They don't, that's not the way they want to approach things, but um, but they have supported civil you know, marriage uh, for gay people. So uh, we were all together uh, in a city enjoying a beer in the afternoon. And uh, my friend, my longtime friend, had to get up and leave to take a work call. So his partner, whom I just met, said, well, I have to ask you a question, Father. I'm not Catholic, but the Catholic Church hates gays. I don't understand how you and my friend are friends. And um, explain this to me. So I said, okay, here's what the Catholic Church thinks about human sexuality, right? It comes from its approach to morality, which is the natural law. It's looking for human flourishing. Its view, our view as Catholics, is that we can look to how we are built to figure out how we're supposed to behave in all kinds of ways, right? And that's that's roughly speaking um, what we consider natural law. It derives from Aristotle and other ancient sources that are secular. Uh, and St. Thomas Aquinas, who's you know uh, in the 12th century theologian is regarded as the best of Catholic thinkers about these things. So the church says, what do you have these sex organs for? You have them to bond and you have them to reproduce. And we view uh, that as totally equal in dignity, male and female are meant to be complementary. That's the origin of marriage. And that any sexual activity outside of babies and bonding, if you will, to put it simply the way you would as a catechist teaching young people about why the church thinks the way that it does, is contrary to the way we're built. And when we do things contrary to the way that we're built, that is not that does not redound to our flourishing, right? And if a person is ordered toward that, that's a heavy cross to bear in our theological language, right? If my if I am oriented to have non-reproductive sex, then the church regards that as an orientation towards something that isn't for your flourishing, right? And therefore you're supposed to refrain from it, right? 
That's the internal church discipline. We can talk later about how and whether that should ever intersect with the state's power to enforce morality. Those are always difficult questions, but that's the basic teaching. This guy said to me, oh, you know what? Uh, and I'm not saying he's correct. We, we remain friends to this day. This conversation was probably 15, 20 years ago. He said to me, uh, that's a beautiful teaching. I went on at greater length and, and, and so forth, put it in, in other terms. And I think it might even be right. Now, I'm, I'm not willing to live it, but now I understand that you do love us and that you're saying that you don't dissent from the church doesn't mean you can't befriend us, that you're going to insist every time we get together, hey, could you pass me the coffee? And by the way, have you guys stopped having sex yet? Right? <laughs> if someone comes and asks me, because they take the tenets of Catholicism seriously, what is the serious argument? I will give it to them. But I don't walk down the hall. We have gay students here who sure, disagree with sure, the church. Sure. And I don't walk down the hall trying to hector them. Anyone who cares about my opinion has invested in friendship with me and probably in the faith. And then they might ask me a question pastorally, help me to think this through. There are a minority, to be sure, but a sizable minority of gay people who are faithful Catholics or Christians who believe this teaching to be true. Eve Tushnet is one of them. She hates that she's always being singled out, but she has the misfortune of being very bright, of being raised in a secular Jewish household by well-known people who we know would have raised her not to be hateful. She even says in the little piece that I gave you that she was very easy with the fact that she discovered she was a lesbian, I think in what, late middle school or high school, because her parents had raised her not to worry about that. And it was only when she got to Yale that she met some Catholics that she found interesting and loving, that she thought through all these things, decided that she wanted to become Catholic and that she believed this teaching. I'm not saying that means she's right, but it at least means that an intelligent, non-bigoted person raised probably to share all the values you have could come to see the wisdom of this teaching and even embrace it in her own life. So I don't think a person who agrees with that could be described as a bigot. You might think they're deeply mistaken and that the church is creating misery for people. I'm open to all of those reasonable assertions, but I can't get my head around the fact that I know a lot of people like Eve Tushnet who have experience as gay people, who have lived outside of the church's teaching and have decided to come into it, and I would be doing an injustice to them to say, for a person to agree with their lived experience, right, and their journey toward what the Catholic Church teaches about human sexuality would be bigotry. I can't wrap okay. my brain around how that could be so. So first of all, Eve Tushnet, I, I assume, is the daughter of Mark Tushnet? Yeah, yeah. Mark is a mentor of mine. Other than Judge Posner, I had to mention Posner once, I'm doing it now. Other than Judge Posner, Tushnet is my most important mentor. Um, and I, I um, figured it was so. <laughs> say again? I figured it was so. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's been, he, I, I don't know if I'd be here today, frankly, without Mark Tushnet. So um, um, now I read the piece you sent me. Um, and I think you're missing, frankly, the biggest part of that piece, which is only between the lines. And I'm reluctant to talk about this publicly, but I think we can't have this discussion, especially since you sent me the piece. I read it. You just mentioned it without mm -hmm. saying this. I don't know what her sexual, I know she self-identifies as a lesbian. She says that in the piece. So we're, I think we're uncommon. We can say she's a lesbian because that's what she calls herself. Yep. But she also says she's a lesbian and doesn't have sex. And she very much throughout that piece suggests she is asexual. Now, Father, there is, there are millions I, of Americans. My understanding is there are millions of Americans who, let me, put, let me rephrase that. She doesn't act on her sexual impulses, whatever they may be. That's what she Correct. means. Okay. Because she thinks that the church is right. Well, no. See, I think you have that exactly the wrong order because you and I are going to disagree on this, but I think I have evidence from your own institution that proves me correct. Okay. I'll, I'll give you another example. Well, hold on. Let me finish. I'll get you finished. Hold on. Let me finish. Okay. 
it's very easy for someone with either a minimal sex drive, of which there are millions of Americans, or a non-existent sex drive, of which there are millions of Americans. There's a whole movement of asexuality out there having you nothing know, to do. Stop, Wait, let me finish. Yeah, let me finish. Yeah, let me finish. Having no, because nothing. you're fighting the hypothetical and creating something that I want to tell you, even if it's true of her, unless you want to call me a liar. I know many people who have come to me as a priest and a friend and said, I used to live this way sexually, and now I want to live with the church's teaching. No, many no, I believe you. I'm not, I'm not arguing. You got, not you, asexual. I, so if you want to say she's a boutique case, even if that's true, which I disagree with your reading. I wasn't the saying argument. that. No, I, in fact, I was. I went, I went, I went out of my way to that say this teaching could only be easy for an asexual person, but, and I'm telling you, no one's saying it's easy, but people might come to agree with it, even though it's hard. No, I'm saying there are millions of people like her. I'm not saying she's. A, I'm agreeing with everything you just said. I, you didn't. That's not where I was. No, because you're saying that she doesn't have a sex drive, or it's easy for her not to have sex. I don't know that to be true. Of her, I don't know it either, but she strongly know. suggests that in this piece. But I that's not what I was going to say. Know. Let, let me finish what I was going to say. With very strong sex drives who also are trying to live the church's teaching. Well, there that's may be people with very strong sex lives who are trying to do that, but most of them fail. I don't want to argue about that. I want to make a different point. We all fail at our moral aspirations, right? You try to be good on Twitter and you fail all the time. I try to be good on Twitter and I fail all the time. The fact that I fail at things doesn't mean right. I'm not aspiring. But I am I not. But I am not on Twitter making. Uh, let me rephrase this. Anive Tushnet, um, the fact that she's able to accomplish this feat of identifying a certain sexual preference, I assume that's what she's doing because she self-identifies as a lesbian, but then yeah, saying... I think orientation is the language, not preference, but yeah. You're right. I was wrong. You're right. Thank you. Her sexual orientation is lesbian, um, but the church teaches her not to act on it, so she's not. Okay, that's fine. All the power to her, I, I don't judge it at all. Where I judge, <laughs> is where there are institutional positions taken by an organization as prevalent and as important and dominant as your church that assume other people can make the same choice. And if they don't make that same choice, I don't know if you're, I understand you're going to react harshly to the word judged, but certainly the Catholic Church says if you commit homosexual acts, not if you're a homosexual person, but if you commit homosexual acts, you are, what's the right phrase? If I come to you and say, fa, fa, if I any, come to you and say, so if you believe in heaven and hell, if that's yeah. what you're asking, any kind of sin done willfully over serious matters over time would imperil one's soul. So you'd love a homily that a friend of mine gives when he reads the end of Matthew's gospel. You might be familiar with it. Jesus says, we're going to separate the sheep from the goats and the sheep, uh, are the ones who um, uh, gave me water when I was thirsty, visited me in prison, clothed me when I was naked. And they, and they say, Lord, when did we ever do these things for you? And he says, whenever you did it to the least of my brethren. And then he says to, to the others, whenever you failed to do it to the least of my brethren. And those are the ones who are going to hell. And this priest friend of mine who is famous for his short and pithy homilies, his only homily on that to the cathedral here in South Bend a few years back was, neglect the poor and you go to hell. Okay. It is true that the church says, if over time, you take things that, that seem to be clear in our moral tradition unseriously and willfully violate them. That's a possibility. We don't teach that anyone in particular is in hell because we can't judge the souls of others. No, but you're, no, no, but the institutional position is don't have homosexual sex or your, 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 your trip to heaven may be jeopardized. Yeah. Okay. That's true. That would be fair to say. Okay. Now here's where a couple places I get lost. Okay. If I wrote an editorial tomorrow, saying, um, 
I have found the Catholic faith. I have joined the church. Um, and it is the church's teaching. Whatever language you want to use, I'll put in what you just said about homosexuality. That The only thing interesting about that editorial would be, oh, look at Siegel. He's changed and blah, blah, blah. Otherwise, no one would say a word. But if I wrote an editorial that said, I am an atheist all the way down, and I think American culture, government, law, and society would be better off if gay people didn't have sex, that I think our country would be better off if gay people were denied the rights, privileges, and benefits of marriage, mm-hmm. despite the 14th Amendment statement that no state shall deny any person equal protection of the laws. Um, and if I were to make a very secular argument that homosexual conduct is a really bad thing, along the lines maybe you just argued, forgetting faith, just that's not how human beings are supposed to be, whatever, plus there'll be mass chaos, there'll be less people, whatever it is. Now, that editorial would get me canceled and probably get me... and, and re- very likely get me fired, leaving aside First Amendment concerns. Well, leaving us, I have different First Amendment views than most people on what my university can do to me or not. It would certainly get me canceled. I, I would no longer be welcome at the ACS. I would no longer be welcome at most. You get you canceled in your own in your own circles, but you know there are places that would welcome you. I suppose um, I would be canceled in many, many, many places. Now, yep. here's my question to you: Why in the world? I just made a presumably rational, yet probably, in my view, bigoted argument as to how we should treat people, men who have sex with men and women who have sex with women. Why does it matter what the basis of my argument is? In other words, let's say I made a really strong, I don't think there's one available. From a point of view of law, it doesn't. From the point of view of cancellation. No, point of view of morality. Father, no. Right and wrong, good or bad. People would consider me a bigot if I said that. Why isn't she a bigot? I don't agree that people would consider you a bigot. Of course they would. People like you would, but that's no, no, no. I think I think I I wouldn't. I would think it would be curious that a secular person in 2023 would adopt uh, secular natural law arguments about human sexuality. That they'd be a very tiny set of people, but I don't think it would be bigotry to do so. It would be philosophically. If I said that that two men could get married, but they have to sign a pledge that they will not have sex during marriage and, and enforceably and, and the law could make that you know valid and 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 um, you can only get married in our state if you pled if you pledge not to have sex with your partner and i make a secular argument supporting that that's bigotry father. that's bigotry all the way down that's me saying hey, tell when, me what you think bigotry means eric i mean you're okay, I'm, going to, I'm going to tell you i'm going to tell you um, when you deny to someone what you allow other, what you not only allow, but want other people to do, and this is the key part we may disagree about, based on who they are. Because whether someone has a strong heterosexual sex drive, a strong homosexual sex drive, strong bisexual sex drive, no sex drive, wherever one is on that spectrum, and I think we would agree, it's not a, it's a spectrum, not a... the, The argument can also be turned on itself. You disagree with her values, but you agree with Wisconsin against Barnett. You agree that a gay couple who run a website business shouldn't have to make websites for Westboro Baptist. Wait a minute. I agree Nazis have... No, hold on. I I agree Nazis have the right to march through... I actually don't agree with that, but let's assume that I did. Most of America agrees that Nazis... 99.9% of American law professors agree 
that not Tushnet, Mark Tushnet might be the only person who does it, and me, and a couple others. But 99% of law professors think Nazis have the right to march through Skokie. The next sentence needs to be, but what they're saying is terrible, awful, bigoted. I will die to defend their right to say it, but we can, we can, we can hold two ideas in our minds at the same time. They have the right to do it, and what they're doing right. is terrible. She and has the right. I, I think bigotry is, is. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Do you disagree with me about that? description no okay no and of course i think you're i said i said i'm open to many descriptions you might think that the catholic church's teaching leads people to misery many people think that that gay people who are uh, uh they internalize their uh, internalized homophobia whatever she says at the end of that very piece yes. no at the end of a different piece she did with the new york times she said if i, I hope people will stop calling me self-loathing but people will say that you can say she's self-loathing i'm not saying right? or people like her i'm not but saying what that. i don't what I don't think you could say, and in the New York Times piece in 2010, I don't know where Eve Tushnet is now on civil gay marriage. She was giving an interview where she was opposing it at the time on these grounds. And we have we can think through the history of how this has changed uh, over time. Uh, that is societal view of marriage and what civil marriage laws should be. But I, I don't think it's bigotry to agree with her moral view I don't think it's bigotry for her. I don't think it's bigotry for any faithful Catholic who, who agrees with it or for this person. I think people can challenge the Catholic Church on the merits and say, you know what? I don't think you're hateful, but that teaching is hateful and it leads to misery. All that is fair game. Right. I, but I do feel that way. Me, bigotry to me means I'm looking at this person, this gay person, and thinking you lack the dignity of other people. I'm saying something cruel about you. That's how I use the term bigot. I agree. I don't. I don't think moral disagreement that is sincere and loving should ever be termed well, bigotry, I, even I, if I think the other person is deeply mistaken. I don't understand that argument. If I own a barbecue store in the Deep South and or any place in 1965, and I say it is against my faith to serve interracial couples, 99 um, percent of America today would say that's a bigoted statement. Um, and I, and, and or even worse, I won't serve black people because I don't think whites and blacks should mingle, which is what they said in the 60s. 50s and 40s and 30s and 20s in this country that blacks and whites shouldn't mingle together in fact in Plessy, the court exactly says that the court says and i think that and i think that was bigotry and again how is that bigotry but i won't i won't provide you my my business services because i think what you're doing is immoral is not bigotry i don't understand that the the because there's a difference between opposing someone or thinking that their dignity is altered by their status right i think it or is that or by their conduct. Right, but I think I it is status. Telling someone you can't have, you violate my moral code if you have consensual adult sex with somebody else and that person has a sex drive, that's not, that is status. Our sex drive is stat. I understand that you choose to have sex, but sex, you know, I have a friend, um, father, right. sorry, brief interlude, but it might be in interesting. I have a very liberal friend who I used to fight with about Bill Clinton. I thought Bill Clinton should have resigned. Um, not because he had sex with Monica Lewinsky, because he had sex with an intern. If she hadn't been an intern, I would have had a different position on it. And then he lied about it under oath. So at the time, I said he should resign. And my friend argued with me and said, no, he shouldn't. Why not? Because everybody lies about sex. That was his answer to me. Everybody. Every human being lies about, not obviously, we don't mean every single human being. Humankind lies about sex. And I said to him, I agree, they do. But not if you're president of the United States, not if you're under oath, and not if you're with an intern. So, but, but there's a very big truth in there. Everybody I mean, lies I think, about I, sex. I don't think, I don't, I don't know how, how much more profitably we can go down this road. I think you've laid out your position. Here is mine. Yeah. 
I hear what you're saying, and that's how you choose to use the term. All I can tell you is, as a human being, normally, if we're sitting across from a bigot, we kind of know it, and we might say it to them. You, I ask you to believe me that I have many gay friends, some of whom reject the church's teaching, but who have come to me for advice, and I tell them, I, I have a, as a priest, I'm going to give you the church's advice. You may take it or leave it. Sure. We will still remain friends. They don't think that because I'm telling them this is the church's advice, and I think it's true, that I'm a bigot. You do. I, that's okay. That's how you want to use the term. I don't see the point in it, but that's okay. I, you know, we people the, disagree the, about all kinds of things, including how to use words. Right. I guess I, I want to be kind of be clear about what my point is because I want to. That, you're right. So it's fair for you to raise that because one shouldn't throw that word around lightly, especially when one doesn't know the person who's one throwing the word. Around. So I, I agree with that. I think that we are on the verge in this country um, of serious anti-LGBTQ, serious anti-Semitic, and maybe, maybe some racist. I mean, we, are, we have so much institutional racism. Yeah, I agree with you. And you, okay. you follow me. You can yeah. see that I was very hard on that ridiculous Ron DeSantis ad. Yes. And that I'm constantly saying that the danger, especially among a certain kind of conservative Catholic, of anti-Semitism is very real and very strong. And I, I worry about it greatly. I've lost friends over it who regard themselves as integralists. And that was one of the things on your agenda to talk about today. I am not an integralist. I think the question of marriage historically, you'd have to agree with this as a matter of intellectual and legal history, right? That why does the state get involved in marriage at all? Well, it's I don't think it should. Well, I don't think it should, by the way, but go ahead. So, so we used to say, okay, well, because the family is really important and we want to promote stability in families and heterosexual sex is what produces families, right? There is no, no technology. Not anymore. Not anymore. I said there is now technology under which gay couples can have sex, but they don't do it by having gay sex, right? All I stated is that now, either in a laboratory or by yes. having traditional heterosexual yes. sex, that's how people reproduce. So that's long before there was in, in vitro fertilization, we had marriage laws, presumably because we thought, let's promote stable families. Right. And you know, remember, in the 1980s and 90s, law professors who were quite liberal and maybe in their private views wanted gay marriage used to say, oh, that's never going to be a consequence, right? Um, Charles Freed used to be trotted out at every Supreme Court hearing. No, I know. Posner wrote a book. Posner said. Wrote it, when Scalia wrote it in Lawrence in the dissent, people on the left, perhaps disingenuously, but they said, oh, that's not true. That's not going to happen. Now, when it comes to a case like Mr. Obergefell, right, not being able to visit someone in the hospital, I totally understand and sympathize with you. As a Catholic and a Christian, whatever the civil laws around marriage should be, whether we should have them at all, there's also this strange thing that in a non-religious age, in an increasingly secular age, people still want the, the trappings and the affirmation of the sacred. And the state provides that. And that's always been a weird feature of American law, right? We have that crazy, the apotheosis of George Washington. So I also get that there's a dignitary sense that people have, like, they could always have entered into a gay marriage. They wouldn't have had rights and privileges. And we both agree many of those people should have as a matter of basic human dignity. So the church fought in ways that I thought were imprudent, these uh, the movement towards civil gay marriage, because I don't think as a matter of where should church law intersect with state law, that was particularly important. There isn't an easy formula for that, right? There are forms of morality that traditionally the state has, has chosen to police and then it's become more libertarian. And lots of people like Joseph Raz have written that it's really complicated to figure out when is morality uh, to be policed. Most people think it's just the harm principle, but we know it's not just the harm principle, right? I think our regulation of tobacco is now about more than just secondhand smoke, right? There's a movement to just get rid of this thing, and, and that's not very libertarian. 
um, but we it might be okay. Right? <laughs> oh, we have. It's not religious. It's just it's just sort of like right. let's not. Let it. So there can be paternalism on the part of the state, whether religious or irreligious, and those lines are hard to police. Here, here's my fantasy. I'm going to give you my fantasy. Not a, se- not a sexual one. Here's my fantasy. Um, so we wake up one morning and we read in the newspaper the Pope has done an amazing thing. The Pope has done something that has shocked the world. That 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 we have to figure out how this happened. And the Pope says the following. The Bible says a lot of things. One of the things it says, my understanding, you can please correct me because I'm ignorant about this. But my understanding is fathers have all kinds of rights to rights to stone their daughters in the Bible if the daughters do certain things that today, A, you'd be arrested, and B, you wouldn't have religious defense for, and C, most people would view as immoral. Why can't the Pope say? Or, or, or there's a famous West Wing episode where Bartlett goes through all the many of the things that you can't touch. I guess football. I guess you can't. There's something in the Bible about not touching the skin of a pig, whatever it is. There are there are hundreds of those kinds of things that we that the church does not adopt today. The church absolutely, whether it says so or not, the church would not would not defend putting a father. I'm sorry, having a father not be arrested for physically stoning his daughter if the daughter had sex with another kid. Um, the father would be arrested, correctly so. I imagine the church would defend that. Why can't the church say, okay, um, we've come a long way in a lot of different matters, um, and we have now evolved, just like President Obama did, because he had to evolve to get to this position, just like Richard Posner, one of the leading jurists in the world, did, who was once thinking that there was no right to same-sex marriage, and then as a judge said there was. We're going to evolve to. And from this moment forward, um, we're not going to treat gays and lesbians as separate classes of people. We're all, uh, let me rephrase that. We're not going to ha- treat people who engage in consensual adult homosexual sex as different than any other group of people. Yeah, um, I would put it even more simply. We're going to say it's permissible. When we currently right. say that's an impermissible act, we're going to change our view on that. Because so, the church has already changed its official position, or at least implicitly its position, on things like stoning your daughters, well, I don't think we were ever in that camp, but... but the Bible uh, says it. But, right. Catholicism has never been okay. biblically fundamentalist. And so I'm not sure there was ever an era of Christianity where some of those ancient Judaic okay. practices were a part of okay, the life of the church. Enough. But that doesn't matter. We could take something more simple. Yeah. There is an answer to your question. It's a complicated answer. But the church has evolved on the question of the permissibility of the death penalty. The church right. used to say it is permissible. And the Pope has called it inadmissible now. And that started with Pope John Paul II in his uh, letter, Evangelium Vitae, the gospel of life, the good news of life. He talked about torture. He talked about the death penalty, in addition to abortion, which obviously the church takes its same strong position on. And he saw these as part of a continuum of the church's need to witness for life. There are people, Justice Scalia was famously and publicly one of them, who thought, no, no, that goes too far. The death penalty is an important uh, adjunct of justice, right? And there are still people in our society who believe that. I am not one. I presume you are not one. So the church can have what's called the development of doctrine. Everyone who's Catholic believes, I think, the following. The Pope could not come out tomorrow and say Jesus did not rise from the dead. We'd say that Pope has lost his marbles. But they they would say you're not a Catholic. The question of which parts of our moral teaching are irreformable, are uh, unrevisable, is a disputed question. There are certainly Catholic theologians and have been for a long time who say 
That natural law picture that Father Daly pointed out to Eric's listeners is the church's traditional position, but it doesn't pay enough attention to current trends in biology and philosophy and anthropology. And if it did, we would be less physicalist about, so there is a whole argument there of revisionism. I am not a moral theologian. I don't spend my days on it. In my pastoral practice, I think people are entitled to the, my best presentation of what the church offers. Why? Because that's why they come to me. I have this title and like sure. I, I'm supposed to be a reliable narrator of the church's teaching. If I were a moral theologian, I might be inclined to make arguments for it, but that's not my trade in the church. I don't take a position publicly on whether this is an irreformable teaching. I don't think the church has taken a position publicly on whether this is an irreformable teaching. And so I believe it's something that might change. There are priests who would disagree with me. Ah, oh, that liberal father daily, right? Uh, <laughs> believe it or not, this gets uttered. Okay, the phrase and, liberal uh, father daily is not one I've ever heard before, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, the gay friend I mentioned to you before is actually coming to visit me here in South Bend tonight. And every time he calls me, which is several days a week, he says, hello, liberal. So, um, <laughs> I, I, there's a law professor on Twitter. I, we tease each other all the time. He calls me lib all the time. I call him lib. He's life is complicated. So uh, the answer to your question is many people think that the Pope could wake up and do that. Some people think he will. Now, there's a second answer that's an answer. Wait, wait, what's, what's wrong with my fantasy, Father? I mean, in principle, nothing's wrong unless the Pope concludes for himself that this is something he can't change. That's what Pope John Paul II said about women's ordination. He wanted to talk a little bit about women in the church. Yeah. The church says that people are equal in dignity, men and women, and they, they, they have to be seen as such. But it also says that there are differences, sex differences matter, and one of them is that certain positions of leadership in the church, ordained ministry, are reserved to men. And that has not been formally declared in the highest of ways, a, a pronouncement called ex cathedra, meaning from the Pope's yeah, chair. I know. He could have done that. John Paul II could have done that. Instead, what happened, this is, uh, no one's going to keep listening because this is such Catholic, uh, abstruse Catholic stuff. But when he was the Pope's chief officer for doctrine, the man who became Pope Benedict, who was then Cardinal Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger, he wrote a letter in that role, the second highest role declaring doctrine in the church, saying, I'm sitting here in the presence of Pope John Paul II, and he sees me writing this and approves I believe this teaching is infallible about women's ordination. And he was interviewed about that later. And people said, what is the status of that document? As a lawyer, you might appreciate his answer. I believe it was, it was wise. He said, that was a fallible declaration that this is an ah. infallible teaching. <laughs> I like that. I That's good. They wanted to kick it down the road. Why would you want to kick it down the road without totally closing the door? Because you're a church of a billion people in different cultures. And this may be unsatisfying, right? You see this in, if you watch any of the news about the Anglican communion, there's constant disruption between liberal Anglicans in the UK and the African people that they introduced to Christianity, who by your lights and my lights, when it comes to gays and to women, have attitudes that we don't think are correct. And, and I don't think they're correct as Christian. You don't think they're correct as secular. But it's hard to go to the people that you brought the faith to 100 years ago when you were also, let's say, retrograde in your but position. But that's your problem. They say, wait, you brought us this. That's right. So it's your problem. Is, wait, hold on. Okay. I, I, there you so go on. Hold on. What I'm saying is if you wake up in the morning and you're the Pope, you have to say, how do I lead a church that includes bringing people of all different levels of culture? I can't Fair. just admit cultural imperialism, even if I want to bring people in cultures that I regard as mistaken along. Okay. That's a okay. hard job. I'm glad so, I don't have it. So let me, okay. So then I, you're fair. And, and, and um, let me, Give a better hypothet uh, hypothetical. Let me ask, ask a better question. It was not a well-phrased question. Um, I have a colleague, I have a friend who um, is Catholic, has always been Catholic, um, is liberal, 
uh, is very anti-death penalty, um, uh, is totally in favor of gay rights, and is um, totally against the, and 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 totally against women not being priests. And when I say to him, "How in 2020?" And this is what I believe. How in 2023 can any billion person organization of such cloud influence power, often goodness, kindness, often not, um, how can they take the position in 2023 that women can't be leaders, uh, real leaders of this, of this institution? And what they say is they putting them on pedestal. What they're really doing is putting them in a cage. His answer to me is the answer I want to hear from you, but I don't think I'll get it. And I'm not even sure you're allowed to give it. So it's two different questions. Can you give it? And are you willing to give it? Are two different questions. I, he says to me, Eric, I have a, I, well, at the time, he, what he said was, um, George W. Bush is acting in ways that I find immoral to the extreme. Everything we did with Iraq was just, they had nothing to do with 9-11. I can't believe we're killing people over there. There were not weapons of mass destruction. Everything he's doing about abortion. My friend's also pro-choice. Everything is doing so on and so forth. But I'm still an American. You expect me to shed my Americanness because I currently don't like the leaders of this country? Now, he said it could get to the point, of course. You know, you know. Get, imagine a Trump who becomes a dictator and you decide you can't become an American no longer exists you know, as I see America. But he said, I can be American and, and, and think George W. Bush is terrible for this country. I can be Catholic. I am Catholic. I, I, nothing I can do about it. And believe much of the church's teachings should be changed. I can I can hold both those thoughts in my head at the same time. I agree with him. I like that approach. And what he said to me was, um, making women, allowing women to become priests is something I believe very strongly, but I have a list of things I feel I'm strongly about, some of which I can do about, some, and some of those things I can do about, I can affect as a lawyer, law professor. I don't really have an ability to affect the church's teaching this way. So although I would like them to change, it's not on my list of things to do. Okay, I respect that. We all pick our, we all, but to me, the key part of that is I am Catholic and the church is wrong not to allow women to be priests. Mm-hmm. Not an easy thing for him to say. And it said it took him a lot of years to get there. That's his current position. That's what I want your position to be. Cause I like you. And I want you to say to me, I mean, here, here's what I can say to you. Yes. Because here's what's true. Yes. Um, I believe this teaching is reformable. So I don't, I think that the fallible declaration was in fact mistaken. There are theologians who think I'm wrong about that. It's a really complicated question of sure. how we understand the church's technical descriptions of its confidence in its doctrines. I, I believe this is not on that list. One of the reasons I believe this is not on that list is that John Paul II's primary argument, his primary argument, it's not the only argument theologians have made. His primary argument is Jesus did lots of quite radical things, including in his relations with women. He gave them exalted status. He talked to this Samaritan woman at the well. There are very famous stories in which he was quite willing to push the envelope, but he only chose men as ordained ministers, which, you know, it's complicated that he even have ordained ministers, but his most exalted disciples, the apostles, were all men. And I, John Paul II, sitting in my chair, don't think I have the authority to do otherwise. That was his argument. I don't think that's a persuasive argument. The, the, the arguments that theologians, there's a woman called Sarah Butler. She used to be in favor of women's ordination. She's a theologian. She's a religious sister. She teaches, I think, at Mundelein. I brought her over to my church. I had a forum when I was running that church in, in Dublin, Ireland. 
I had a forum with a wonderful, uh, amazing uh, warrior for human rights and for peace among Irish uh, Catholics and Protestants. She was the first police ombudsman. That's a tough job. That's a tough job. Uh, Nuala alone. And Nuala said, I think there will be women priests someday, and I think there should, but it's not my big battle in life. And Sister Sarah Butler was going to speak the next day because I did a forum on women in the church. I think it was appropriate to have a forum on women in the church. I was happy to welcome Nuala. I think she's a great friend. I was in no way offended that she said what she did. And I've just described to you intellectually, I think there's a lot going for that position. Sarah Butler, in writing a book, thinking she was going to take that position, decided she was wrong. And she thinks there is something to the iconography of men's and women's bodies, to the idea that priests are supposed to be like the expendable foot soldiers. They're not supposed to live the priesthood in a way that's all about power. And what we need is a redeemed, humbler priesthood, not something that is so arrogant that it seems really ridiculous to exclude women from it. So she has a subtle argument that what we need is to reform our idea of the priesthood. Yes, elevate women, take them seriously. She's, after all, a theologian in the church. She trades priests. She writes books. Pope Francis has given women higher positions in the Vatican structure than ever before. And uh, to your friend's point, can he affect church's teaching? Pope Francis has also said, somewhat controversially, we want bishops listening, what he calls the synodal process. We want them doing this around the world, listening to people, including your friend. So if teachings like this are going to change, it's going to have to be because there are conversations like right. this among Catholics and with non-Catholics. Right. And so I, 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 that's what I would say about can, that. Can I, can I, follow I up also have to say my mother, if she were here, if, if her dementia were as advanced, my mother always said, well, I could never go and be a woman priest. That goes to this separate question of it's a billion person church. When I was a seminarian studying Spanish in Guatemala, I talked about this with the women who were teaching me Spanish. It was one on one instruction. And they laughed. They said, oh, you North Americans are so obsessed with, you know, feminism. We don't need women priests. We, we feel great. I'm not saying she was right. But when you have a billion person church you, and you're listening to everyone, you also have to listen to the people who aren't ready for what Eric and Father Bill may be ready for. So if you, you don't have to answer this question. If you said to me today, you did, and I want to be very clear, you're not saying this. So for the world out there, he's not saying this. It's, hypothetical. it's a hypothetical question. Um, if you said to me today, you know, Eric, I've, I've, I've been thinking about this and reflecting on it for 30, you know, my, my entire adult life, I've decided I'm going to fight for women to become priests. I think the church's teachings on this are, are uh, fallible. Um, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to do anything into the church that I can, but I'm going to fight for this. I am going to fight for this in any way I can. That's peaceful. And that's within the rules of church discourse. Would you, would you, can you do that? Can you make that, whether you believe it or not? Could you hypothetically, would you be fired or whatever? I'm not sure the right word is. Would you be defrocked if you said that? No, certainly okay. not. Okay. Um, I mean, priests, priests can say all kinds of things. Uh, there are certain jobs that I, I'm not a theologian in the church. I don't teach in a seminary. If you took a particularly, on any given issue, if you took a particularly heterodox position, a church, and, they, and the church should, right? Because my job as a theologian is like your job as a law professor. It's one thing to say, I think this should change as a law professor. Within the church, you're supposed to be training priests to be able to, uh, and other ministers, we have lay ministers who get the same degree that priests get, the coveted MDiv degree that I have from the University of Notre Dame. Right. And, uh, and, and so I think people are entitled to say, well, I want my professor to give me what the church actually teaches, to be a reliable narrator of the church's teaching. That doesn't mean that uh, theologians can never critique that teaching. Sometimes if their critique goes too far, because they exist within a church organization, they will be silenced. They will be asked by the Vatican to stop writing about this issue. And we're in a system, right? That's not like, I don't have First Amendment rights as a priest within the right. church to do ministry as I see fit. I have First Amendment rights against the state. Right. 
So the church does still from time to time say that's a forbidden position and that's, that's within its rights to do so as a matter of internal discipline. On this issue, where is the status of that? I, I don't know. Okay. Um, okay. What I think is how can I fight for it from my position, right? I'm not fighting for it because I'm not sure. I respect Sarah Butler. I think it's actually a complicated question. I do think that the priesthood before we do anything about it, should be lived more humbly, shouldn't be seen as about power. And that starts with me not living it in a way that lords it over people. There's right. like lots of stuff in the New Testament about uh, how religious leaders should behave and the dangers of clergy, right? And clericalism. And this Pope is railing against clericalism all the time. I try not to be clerical in my daily life. It's, it, it's a hard thing to do for a professor, you know, to respect the autonomy of your students when they give you so much authority, so much the more so when they're raised for little kids to, to respect it. So. What I can do and must do is try to fight any evidence of sexism, of not treating men and women with equal, equal dignity. And it's for God to sort out because I don't have the role in the church of being a theologian, whether down the line that is going to, as Nula alone predicts, result in women priests or not. And there are two tracks again on which that's going to proceed. Even if Nula alone is perfectly right, theologically, there's still the anthropological reality that God's wisdom, as I see it as a church person, unfolds over time as we are ready to accept things, right? We see this in the New Testament. Jesus says, you shouldn't get divorced. And his fellow religionists who are all Jewish, another of the reasons Christian anti-Semitism is insane, right? Uh, they say, well, wait, Moses told us we could get divorced. And Jesus says, well, that's because that was the best God could do at the time. You were too stiff-necked. You were too stubborn to hear it. So if human beings in, in the unfolding of God's mystery get, have to be worked with gently over time because we're stupid and stubborn, then that's a different track from what, what is the truth where things will land, right? Okay. In the fullness of time, as it were. We've been at this for an hour and five minutes. I could do it for another two hours, but we can't, unfortunately we can't. I, I want to end with it. Okay, so we, I think we've covered a lot of issues about spirit through creative and about faith and about religion and law and women. And I really appreciate this frank conversation, Father. I appreciate it very much. I always learn from you. So thank you. So I have one last question before our time is up. It's not a, it's not a religious question. Um, you at least, well, your school, Notre Dame Law School, is clearly in the center of the originalism movement. You, you have originalists. Um, yep. Um, you're, not, you're not, I mean, San Diego has a center. Georgetown has a center. You guys don't have a center for originalism, but there's clearly a lot of law professors at your school who are sympathetic to yeah. You hobnob with these people. You talk about originalism on Twitter. I, I think you talk about it intelligently. They're my friends. Yeah. Okay. My, I have some, my friends too. Um, many, most of them are my friends. I, I've, I've made peace with almost all of them, to be honest. Uh, Randy Barnett came on this podcast. We had a great time. Um, Mike Ramsey and I are really good friends. I mean, close. We, we're, we're friends. There are super liberal originalists like Evan Burnick, whom we both know. And I've, been out here I've done everything I can to, for Evan's career. I, I, I recommended him to the school he's at. I, I love Evan. He's wonderful. Here's my question. I'm asking this now as a lawyer. You're a lawyer. You're a trained, I mean, you, were, you practice law. You went to Columbia. You're a smart lawyer. I can't get people to focus on something that is really disturbing to me about originalists. And that's probably because of all of the smoke. I mean, a lot of liberal law professors more famous than I am, Erwin Chemerinsky, others have made all these arguments about originalism, some of which are outdated, some of which I think are very prescient. But here's my thing. I am very confident that everything we know about First Amendment law is anti-originalist, except for the ban on prior restraints. So the Pentagon Papers case, famous case where the New York Times and Washington Post, for the non-lawyers in the room, wanted to publish some information, and the government tried to stop it beforehand. Well, 
prior restraints is what the First Amendment was designed to prevent, the speech part of the First Amendment. When the printing press came out in England, the, the Parliament and the King had all kinds of rules about it and all that stuff. Let's say I don't agree with First Amendment doctrine, but say that I do. Say that I really love it. Most Americans do like the fact that we protect speech more than any other country by far. And we have literally dozens of cases, probably 50, since Justice Thomas came on the bench, where Thomas Scalia and now Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Gorsuch outlaw and overrule state and federal laws based on the First Amendment in a way that simply cannot be academically characterized as originalism. That's not what the history shows. It just doesn't. It may be great. It may be the best public policy in the world, but it's not originalism. It'd be like saying the Catholic Church is in favor of gay marriage. No, the Catholic Church is not in favor of gay marriage. The Founding Fathers were not in favor of using the First Amendment as a social constructing tool to deal with anything other than either prior restraints or maybe extremely severe restrictions of a kind that, that although even there, the, you know, the Alien and Sedition Act was pretty severe and it was passed by the same people who wrote the First Amendment. So my question to you is, because you're very good at messengering in a substantive way. I don't mean that flippantly. I mean, you're very good substantively. Do you agree with my assessment? And then if you do, how do I get people to see? I'm not saying we should change the law, although I, I think we should. That's a separate argument. I want people to see it's not originalism. That's not what's driving these people. Because if it was, our entire First Amendment doctrine, which is probably the most litigated part of constitutional law, other than the Fourth or Eighth Amendments, is wrong as an originalist matter. So people say, I'm an originalist. I believe in the court's strong free speech doctrine. And I say, you can't be both. Pick a side. Where am I wrong? Uh, I'm not enough of a First Amendment scholar to take a position whether you're right or wrong. I don't I don't. I mean, Judd Campbell did the work on this, and everyone recognized it. Again, I'll posit that you're correct. Okay. I'm less of an originalist now. I, I think of originalism, textualism, purposivism as all forms of saying we need to be better at reading these things and we were we were veering out of control if you look at first amendment religion law now or even something like let's take a different area that doesn't have to do with originalism chevron's kind of disappearing yeah the court likes ways of looking at the law for a period of time and then it maybe self-perceives because it appears to be unanimous on the court that no one wants to talk about chevron right now like right. elena kagan is not writing hey we should have meant no one is saying we need to bring back chevron i don't know why that is it's a mystery right there was clearly Scalia's, uh, what is it, Green Laundry Bach against Green or Green Bach, I always forget the name of that case, where I think that's the one where he lampoons the brief that said, well, now that we've looked at legislative history and we can't figure that out, let's go to another indicator of meaning the text. That's a crazy statement. How did a crazy statement like that, that didn't start with the text? Because there was a trend of really relying on this process stuff and purpose. Not a trend, Father. It's, you, been, go it's been going you, on since 1857. It's, it's, uh, it's, it, we cannot separate out texts. They are not individual units of meaning that cannot be interpreted. And in, in. so I don't think originalism as so-called original meaning originalism works. Okay. What, what you're, what you're saying is none of the founding fathers wanted this. Right. Well, but that's not what originalists purport to be looking for. They purport to be trying to figure out the original public meaning of words. I don't think that makes sense because these words are essentially trying to do something. And so you can't separate out the public meaning of words very satisfactorily, not when it comes to broad terms, terms that admit of different layers of abstraction. So I don't disagree with you. Okay. I don't know whether it's originalism or not. I don't think originalism gets you very far. We, okay. you, you have to, some hard questions in the law are underdetermined 
And when things are underdetermined, this is why I think we should treat the court as a court. And, and it behaves as a court most of the time, statistically. I know, you know, uh, Steve Vladek or somebody wrote a piece. Oh, these are manipulation of statistics. They mostly, when they're doing tax, when they're doing stuff that doesn't no, but they, but they pick those cases. Father, they pick those cases. They know they can't pick. They, they can't they do, pick but the 15. Point is, the point is there are lots of areas that are important to litigants and to citizens in which the court slaps down lower court decisions unanimously and says, we all agree this is where the law is. So they know how to be a court. There are underdetermined, difficult questions that Obergefell itself takes the position, look, once we as judges have come to a new sense of morality with respect to homosexual conduct, we must say that that's what equality demands. That is a court behaving as moral theologians. I think that's what the court is arguably doing in the affirmative action case, right? It's kind of Obergefell in, in the other way. So I, I think a consistent thing for me is that what is motivating me when I when I agree with some of these original so-called originalist results and when I disagree with others is this principle that the law should not radically surprise people because I do think that the basic concept of law is there's a legitimate and identifiable lawgiver a legitimate process by which laws get put into place and if the whole country is surprised by some result that has to be a sort of malfunction not that the law never has a surprising result but it shouldn't be gigantic so in this sense I find the major questions doctrine as a general matter, not in the particular cases, appealing because of the let's not find elephants in mouse holes principle. That is not a school of jurisprudence. I grant you, it is a pragmatic principle about judging. Uh, and it's, I like it. It's sort of, it's sort of <laughs> like, you know, when you see it. So I think originalism uh, grew out of that impulse in response to certain decisions that people thought were going too far in one direction. I'm not agreeing with everything that gets tagged yeah. under originalism. Now I have to say, I don't spend all my time thinking about this and a broad range of really smart people like Larry Solom think I'm I'm missing something. And so does my colleague, AJ Belia, Jeff Pojanowski. These are very smart people who are dedicated, who hold different substantive views, Randy Barnett, who think that the project still has a lot going for it. And I like to read their stuff. I mean, that's the academic and legal life. They're constant and ongoing efforts to get better at reading well together. And I know people think I'm I, that's a banal phrase of mine, but I just think there's no, there isn't a magic formula. We all want some Archimedean point under which we can say, this is the thing that means I no longer have to say, this is my judgment and I stand by it. And Eric, you have your judgment and sometimes we'll disagree. But in these big cases, that is something that happens. And there isn't an Archimedean point where you say, no, 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 what you were doing was morality. What I'm doing is computation. Right. We have nine human beings on the court. They are not computers. We don't want to be ruled by chat GPT-17. And that'll mean uh, we're always going to have these hard cases where, yeah, if you put a bunch of conservatives on a court, they're going to find different, they're going to see different things as elephants in different mouse holes. I, I don't disagree with that. I think it's it would be foolish to, to try to disagree with that. So, so and we had elections in which a president said, both candidates, right? Hillary said, I'm going to put people on the court who will defend Roe. I'm not saying this is why the election turned, but at least we had an open process, right? Everyone a, knows. Right. It wasn't about Roe, it was about Obergefell, but yes. By a president who said, I want to put a justice that I think is going to overturn Roe. There was no big surprise there. She signed public statements that she thought Roe was wrongly decided and should be overturned. Like, that's sort of transparent. It's open society, you, you know. Fam famous Father, excuse me, excuse me. Said, excuse elections me. have consequences. Excuse me. Know? And President Grant did that in 1870. When the court held that that the Congress didn't have the power to make paper money legal tender, and Grant, there's a litmus test. Grant said, "I'm only putting two people on the court who will reverse that decision." He put two people on the court. A year later, they reversed that decision. That's been going on forever. 
I'm so glad we had this conversation for a lot of reasons, but one uh, too many reasons to name. But for one, but, but one of the main reasons is what you just said is why I find you so interesting. I want to make sure I have you correct. You said originalism doesn't get us very far in the hard cases. We don't need originalism for the president has to be 35. We can just read. It's the hard cases that we need it for. And you said it doesn't go very far. But more importantly, you said, I think, that the court's affirmative action jurisprudence, especially the most recent um, Students for Fair Admissions case, um, is really like Obergefell in a lot of ways and that the justice are imposing their moral vision on us in a way they can't tie directly, at least, to any kind of original meaning argument. Father, that's right, a very- they can, but it's the same problem. They can say, we think equal treatment demands that we step away from this. But of course, lots of people have thought otherwise. Just like Kennedy said in Obergefell, it's not quite an equal protection decision, but most people want to read it that way because we want to read texts yes. in the best possible light. Yes. So, so that's the level of abstraction problem. We all agree that people have to be treated equally. Some people disagree about the entailments of that. Right. And and so I, I view the I have come to view this case. And again, I don't purport to be a 14th Amendment scholar on, on the question, but I don't think the, the historical scholarship will have an Archimedean point in which someone can say uh, this is how it had to be decided ab initio and every other mis decision along the way was a mistake. When you say Archimedean point, it reminds me of, of one of the best law review articles I ever read um, where, where a professor talked about the Ipsy Dixit moment and his position was in every important con law case or there is a clash of principles. I think you agree with that. There's a clash of principles. And at some point, the court makes a decision that can't really be traced persuasively to text, history, whatever. It's just the moment when it said, this is right or this is wrong, and this is what I have to do. And the court doesn't talk about it that way. And we'd be better off. We'd honestly be better off if Justice Thomas did not write his incredibly unpersuasive concurrence on originalism and just said, affirmative action is bad. Now, I once thought it was good. Now I think it's bad. Here are my reasons for thinking it's bad. I'm a judge. I have authority. I'm going to strike it down because I think it's bad. We'd all be much better off than him. You don't have to respond to this. Concocting fake and unpersuasive arguments about original meaning to get there. But I, I do want to tell my audience, um, and, and some on the left especially, that you are a very thoughtful person. And the fact that you can be teaching at Notre Dame as a Catholic priest and come out and say originalism doesn't get us where we need to go in a lot of important cases. That's why I like you so much. So thank you. Thank, thank, thank you for doing that. Of course, that's my position too, as you know. Um, but, I, but, but I do think Let it's- Let me thank you and, and put it in the context of law. And Evan Burnick and I had this exchange at some length on Twitter when Dobbs came down. Yeah. I wish the Dobbs opinions, obviously I think Dobbs was correctly decided. Yeah. So do I. I wish, I wish that the majority opinion had been written with women who have had or think they may need to have abortions in mind with the maximum level of compassion that the majority could muster to say, we understand you have a passionately held disagreement with us. Here's the best we can do to say why this is how we are exercising this judgment. And I wish the dissent had considered the most ardent pro-life person, some of whom were sitting in that room, right? You've, right. Got, you've got Amy Coney Barrett there who has this public record. So they know they're sitting across from a woman a mother with a sincerely held moral disagreement with them and had written to persuade, or if not to persuade, at least to make the most compassionate possible self-justification, even if you know some people are never going to come around. The court doesn't write that way. It writes as if 
and, and this is across the board, right? Think about that weird case where Justice Kagan had that footnote, really. It was the uh, the Andy Warhol case. That's yeah. weird. Like, keep that argument. Like, go to lunch and hash it out and be clever against each other. But why put that in the Federal Reporter? I don't see how that advances we society yeah. well. We, we, Justice we Scalia, like, the, the line about the paper bag makes a lot of people laugh. And Justice Scalia could make people laugh. But I would have pulled that out if I would have asked him to. Father, excuse, me for, the, excuse me. For the, for the non-lawyers listening, this is important to me. Because um, I've talked about Scalia a lot on this podcast, with, with the father's referring to again very generously from my perspective as a as we disagree on a lot of politics. Scalia said in Obergefell that um, that you know he, he would have put a bag over his head before he would have joined the majority opinion. No, before the, some particular line that was one of Kennedy's gauzier lines, right? And, I think and, everyone and, agrees and, Kennedy wrote some gauzy things, but and and, Ken, and Scalia didn't have he could have made the same point in a non obnoxious way. Um, Father, I want to thank you very much for doing this. Um, I wanted to say about Dobbs, I, when you said you agree with the result, and I chimed in, me too, what I meant by that was I agree with Dobbs, but only if we also take away Shelby County and Adirond and, and not Citizens United, but the cases after Citizens United that totally, I think, were incorrect, did not involve prior restraints and so on. It involved money, not films. Um, um, but we agree that, I think we agree, that when the court decides those kinds of cases, it should put its preferences front and center as opposed to hiding them behind. Well, I'm not really doing this. The family I hear you. I'm not an expert on the, I'm not an expert on any of those cases. If we ever have a third podcast or yeah. if we ever have a beer together, I get down to Atlanta sometimes. So maybe we'll do well, let me know when you do. Sure. With Anthony Michael Christ or something. Here's here. I joke sometimes about uh, your Twitter interventions that are always this court is not a court. Like, You'll have to explain to me how, as a legal realist, you you can get very far saying you think something is wrong, and like I would, I feel like I should be able to take your con law course and on any particularly difficult hypothetical you've put. I would simply write, um, "The court is not a court." This is a joke of a question, citing seventeen but, of your tweets, okay. and you have to give me an A. So but, I would like to have that but conversation. No, but, but, okay, I understand why you're saying that, but to be clear, what I tell my students the very first day is, um, you get no points on the exam. Or saying the court is not because they all Google me, so they know, they know you get no points for that. This is about doctrine. This is about case law. This is about what the court has actually said, not what I think the court is or what I want it to do. Having said that, when I do critique, substantive critique, in, in the Adirond case, Justice O'Connor called a prior case a substantial departure, which it was not. It's a demonstrably false statement. That's not the court's not a court. That's just that doctrinal position was just obviously and famously wrong. As a matter of precedent, not wrong as moral judgment. Just anyway, my students know they can't get away with that. I don't let them do that. Um, because you brought it up, though, um, if the court took sixty-five con law cases a year, which they could, if they decided sixty-five very controversial free speech, religion, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Eighth Amendment, Fourteenth cases, um, the whole world would agree with me. The court is not a court because ninety-eight percent of those cases would be six-three. Um, so they so so because they control their own docket. They, and they know that the only constraint they have is what they can get away with. And that's the president does something crazy, like Roosevelt does something crazy, but that's very rare. Um, so they, they make their docket intentionally small with those kinds of cases because they know if there was 50 of them, Siegel would be right. <laughs> because in those cases, the law... I was, haven't clerked at the court. I've never had to write a memo for the cert pool, so I don't know. I. I think people assume that other people are bad actors when we're all just human beings. I'm and not they saying they're bad actors. Cases and they have to decide IP cases. No, but your model is they're only not doing that because they're afraid of it. I don't know. I think they're 
doing the best they can on all sides to decide what case is urgent now, what's an important priority now. There's no formula for that. You, you, and, you, and keep, you, you, you say that, Father, but I and I want to stop this because you have to go to lunch. And I, but I but I've got to tell you, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor vote 99.9 percent of the time in, in 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 cases that raise liberal conservative stakes, liberal, and when Scalia Thomas Alito 99 percent of the time. Yes, it is 99% of Scalia. Don't throw the well, fourth no, no, I'm not disagreeing that if they took those 65 cases, what I'm saying is I don't know that I have the confidence that you have as to the motives of oh, how fair they enough. put fair enough. their, their fair thing. Enough. I think they also have to take IP cases and fair have enough. to talk about um, you know, Jack Daniels dog toys. Right. And, fair, and, fair enough. My only point cases. is we don't, we don't really care about those cases, only subsets of the population. The whole population oh, they, cares. They, they don't get people angry and excited, right. but they, they matter, right? Like okay. the law. They don't matter right? as much as the abortion, affirmative action, campaign finance reform, uh, um, uh, gun cases. No. Okay. Father, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I'm glad, I hope you're glad you came back a second time. Of course I am. Yeah. Okay. And I'll it, see you it, on it Twitter. It didn't take me long to agree with you. We just had to find a week because I, I had a delightful wedding last weekend and I was at Top Golf when you would have wanted to do this. I'm Top Golf. I'm the worst golfer in America. I'll announce that publicly. Um, all right. Thank you, Father. I really appreciate it. Likewise. See you, Eric.